The title of the talk is Humility, or Who Has Control of the Remote. (laughs) So I'd like to begin with a um, poem by the great Persian poet Hafiz. It's called Tripping Over Joy. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. (laughs) So the humility part of the talk is when we trip over joy and surrender. And the um, who has control of the remote is the part of the talk where we think we have a thousand serious moves. A part of a long retreat, we have the amazing privilege of having the time to investigate the conditions that bring about suffering. And we also have uh, the time to investigate the conditions that bring about peace and happiness and joy. We get to investigate how does a separate self happen. You know, we get to investigate when we feel broken or lost or confused or when we feel whole, complete, it's when we, we don't feel like uh, we need or want anything. It can be quite interesting when um, desire or fear or hatred or delusion has control of the remote. That's when a separate self is happening and we suffer. And when compassion or wisdom, love and kindness, Uh, have control of the remote. Um, Sometimes even the TV goes off. (laughs) But at least uh, when wisdom and compassion have control of the remote, there's happiness, there's acceptance, peace. The insight into anicca or impermanence, or change, is so important um, in our spiritual journey. It's like such an utter foundation for developing wisdom. And in the instructions this morning, Carol talked about um, how the second foundation of mindfulness, uh, investigating feelings, intersects with this um, understanding of change. 
us um, human beings and all beings are born into this fantastic, uh, wild world of change, stream of change. And one aspect of investigating this is, is the world of feelings, that the truth of life is that with each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling that comes. And this is a mental feeling. So that even if we have a bodily sensation of intense heat in the knee, in that same moment of the contact with consciousness of that intense moment of heat, there's also a mental feeling of perhaps unpleasantness. And the next moment could be a sound that's neutral. The next moment could be the rising movement that's neutral. The next moment could be a thought that's pleasant. You know, and when we just even start to get a sense of how out of control this is, you know, how bombarded we really are, um, sometimes we panic. You know, sometimes it will seem overwhelming. And often we, we miss that we've been having insight. usually when we're panicking about this world of change, we've actually had an insight into dukkha, and we're having aversion to it. We don't like that there's this incredible insecurity or unreliability of existence, moment to moment. So one way to look at this stream of change is that, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is just, you know, it's rolling on, rolling on. And that's the truth. So whenever we jump into the present moment and start rolling with it, you know, there's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and it rolls. That's the truth. And in a moment when we just have something unpleasant happen, we're not in balance, we don't see it clearly, and we push it away. In that moment, there's a separate self. It's just a temporary moment of identification. It's not permanent. But in that moment that we're not in the flow of the truth of things, that's what a separate self is, and that's what suffering is. It's that identification with the experience as me or I or mine, and getting caught in the illusion that we can control it. And that's the same with uh, pleasant. You know, we, we notice something pleasant, we're not quite in balance, and then maybe we're sort of in balance and we even were eating something really good, like a cookie one of the cooks makes for lunch. We're enjoying... Maybe we start thinking of maybe I should go up and get another one, you know, and then we still might be still noticing, oh, (laughs) attachment. But at some point, we lose touch with the truth of things, and we might get really lost in that experience. And that's the suffering. It's that separate self that's in control of the remote, the attachment in that case. It's very important for us to understand that these are temporary moments of identification. They're not permanent. They also are changing.
it's usually when um, greed, hatred, and delusion have control of the remote, and we don't know it, that we suffer the most. Or when they're fighting over control of the remote, which I'll give an example of in a while. So to describe this um, tripping over joy place that Hafiz describes so well of surrender, a pure moment of mindfulness is this kind of acceptance or surrender. Uh, there, are, there are sometimes four aspects that we describe in mindfulness uh, that we can see how helpful um, the mindfulness can be in helping us let go of control of how life is. So the first is just be having a receptive presence. If we're not receptive, we can't know what's happening. It's receiving the breath, receiving a sound, receiving fear, receiving clinging, whatever it is, it's like we We can't experience it if we don't receive it. And then out of that receiving, we connect with it and accept it, maybe. So this is describing the mindfulness, which the first part is that receptivity. There's the allowing or acceptance or willingness to experience what's there. And then interest, an interested presence you can see that sometimes we might have the acceptance, but maybe we don't have the interest. It's good enough. When we have all four of these, you'll feel like there's a way in which we're surrendered. So the third is that interested presence, and the fourth is a non-identified presence, a non-self-referencing presence, a non a not, um, not taking what's happening personally. So when these four happen, we do tend to let go of control of the remote. And we let, you know, the show go on. We just show up for the show. No matter what channel's on. If you have cable, you might be having a more interesting sitting. If you only have local Barry TV, (laughs) you might be having a, a more bored time in the sitting. (laughs) But it really doesn't matter, does it? The opposite of this kind of pure mindfulness, you can go through the list and see. We can be non-receptive. We're not in the moment. We can't flow with the change. We can be non-accepting, non-interested, and very identified. So these are just different ways in which how we're showing up for life happens. One leads to suffering, and one leads to non-suffering. So, for example, maybe we are. We sit down, or we're walking, and we feel quiet. You know, the breath is coming and going by itself. Sound happens. And maybe there's this unpleasant sensation in the knee somewhere that happens. Um, And just in this moment where we don't receive that sensation fully, maybe because of that we're not accepting it, we might just jump into, oh, I wonder if I can work that out. You know, the, the motivation shifts from 
being just with the purity of that sensation to getting rid of it. That can happen in a moment. Or maybe we think that, well, if I just adjust my posture, then I can get fully enlightened. <laughs> you know, we think of that sensation, it's become an obstacle rather than something to show up for. This is where we think we have a thousand serious moves. So what I like to call that is fake acceptance. You know, and a lot of the practice is trying to convince ourselves that we're accepting something. You know, we're not admitting that what's happening is happening. Uh, And so much self-delusion comes. And I find over the years of practice that it's really just this gradual ability to be totally honest with what I'm really doing. You know, whether I'm showing up or not, or how I'm talking myself into that I'm showing up, when really I'm not. You know, it's amazing. So I call that ability to be honest this humility, knowing we don't have any moves. Because the truth is, in that moment, the move has happened, or is happening. So this fake acceptance, or denial, or indifference, um, it's really important to see when that comes up, because it comes up a lot. Again, this is not an obstacle for us. It's part of what happens in the present moment, that we yield. We can trip over joy with resistance. We can trip over joy with denial, um, with self-deception. Because in any moment, we can experience the ease of stepping back and being honest. The ease. It's so wonderful to finally go, oh yeah, clinging. It's okay. Oh, yeah. If you look at our thinking process, most of it is self-referencing. I mean, 99% of it is. And it's okay. It's not like we have to get rid of it at all. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. And we step back from it. And we let it be background. Sometimes it's like a radio on really far away. Sometimes it's like you can't turn the station and it's really loud. But still, one can be okay. It's just thinking. The most important thing to remember is that in the Vipassana practice, we really like it when we don't have to anchor. We love it when we can just flow with the attention and that there's no reactivity coming up, there's no separate self coming up. Of course, that's that um, just flow of the truth. But what happens when it's not like that? What happens when resistance comes up? How do we relate to those moments? And this is the crux of the practice, especially at this point in the retreat. Because if we think that all of a sudden aversion and attachment are going to disappear rather than that they become more visible. You know, they, we be, as we become stronger, they'll become more visible and that that's a good thing, not something, not, not something wrong or that, you know, there's some way that our practice is really um, not working for us. 
I had an opportunity this winter to do a self-retreat at home. And um, self-retreats at home in Honolulu are often, for me, a little less protected than a retreat like at a retreat center like this, no matter how much I think I've got everything, you know, together. <laughs> I'm not going to have interruptions. Um, something often happens that I resist. Uh, so I wanted to share this time. <laughs> I was not having interruptions. It was probably seven, maybe eight days into the retreat, and I was feeling like I was finally getting some space and quiet that I had needed for a long time. Uh, and in my practice, usually kind of late morning, you know, it gets, it's like my strongest time of day. And I really like it if I don't get interrupted then. You know, so, you know, things were just kind of settling down, and it was around 11 in the morning, and it was like that. I'm not attached to this, of course, you know. I mean, I had myself totally convinced that I wasn't attached to this, and I was sitting down, it was like, (laughs) isn't this great, you know. And then there was a knock on the door, and I decided to ignore it. And then it just got louder and louder, and it sounded really desperate. So I just, you know, I just didn't want to answer it, but I finally got up, and it was a policeman. Well, you know, just imagine if you were sitting here, you know, and a policeman walked in, you know, and you're really quiet. It's your best sitting of the day, right? <laughs> you're really attached. And I was just stunned, you know. He's there, and he said, um, could you help me identify someone, please? I, and I'm saying, I'm really quiet, you know, like, and I, all I could think of was how I didn't want to identify with anything, you know. <laughs> it's like, I said, I, I wanted to say, you can't believe what I've been just doing for 10 days, you know. <laughs> but I, you know, smiled and walked out with him to the police car, and there's a toddler in the back seat with just diapers, <laughs> little girl, like probably 10 months old or 8 months old, and he said, could you stay with her? Um, until I can find her mother. <laughs> just, okay, just just stay with me here. You know, just try to imagine your quiet sitting, your two-week retreat that you've been looking forward to for two years. And um, so I was trying to show up for this experience, and I'm like, let me get this straight. You are trusting me to stay with this kid. Well, you go look for the mother. Mm-hmm. You know, so I said, okay. He came back an hour and a half later. And it was amazing, you know, it was just, um, (laughs) the most amazing part of it was that the mother wasn't grateful, you know. (laughs) I expected, you know, at least some accolades, you know, or praise, or just at least a connection, but it was a very strange landscape. It was like, um, they just came. And they went, you know, and I'm standing at the driveway (laughs) holding this kid. You know, I had been holding this kid for an hour and a half, and then they just left, and it was like, no one said thank you. (laughs) I went back into the house, and I just thought, well, that was strange, you know. (laughs) You know, and I couldn't even find any meaning in it. You know, I still, you know, there was, (laughs) you know, if you can find meaning in it, it, you kind of can reassure yourself that it was okay, but it was just so empty of anything normal or, you know, meaningful. So then the next day, same time, 
there's a knock on the door. <laughs> and I'm like, oh boy, okay, you know, should I answer this? No, I don't want to, you know, you know. And this was a person who wanted to fix the computer and I didn't know about it. And um, he's addicted to chocolate and he's kind of like a friend of the family. And the reason he really came was to get chocolate out of the refrigerator, but I didn't know it at the time. And so I just sort of observed all this and... Um, he left, and I still was convincing myself that I was okay with this. No, really, I just like, okay, that was strange, you know. And then the next day, 11 o'clock, you know, I'm sitting there, and there's no knock, but all I can think about is that there's going to be a knock, you know. <laughs> you know. And it was incredible. I'm sitting there, and it's like, maybe I should put a sign on the door. <laughs> And, and I, you know, and then I, I got up and I shut this one door and then, you know, I just, it was incredible. All of a sudden, I couldn't stop it. It was like this flood of obsessing about, you know, the door and the knock. And, um, you know, most of us here in this room know that when we start obsessing about something that there's often a hidden, you know, emotion. Uh, and I kept trying to tell myself that I was totally okay with what had happened the last two days. And then finally, you know, it's very simple what's hidden. It's usually aversion or attachment, yeah? And so I convinced myself that the last two days hadn't bothered me, but really, I wanted a quiet sitting. And I had it so rationalized in my mind that I deserved it. You know, that I, I you know, that there, there was all this self-pity and deserving and... I just didn't want to face the wanting, the attachment to the quiet. And finally, when I just could say, oh, <laughs> I want a quiet sitting. It's okay. It was just wanting. It got quiet. Wanting. Now, sometimes when we're sitting, it's not just the wanting that comes up. There'll be the wanting will come up, and then the fear that the wanting is destroying our quiet will happen. It's like both have charge of the remote. And look at this. This is human. And what we don't understand is that this is part of going deeper. This is actually part of getting quiet. It doesn't matter if it's a policeman. Doesn't matter if somebody's taking chocolate out of your refrigerator. It's going to be something. It's going to be some, you know, fear of a brain tumor, or you know, it's like it's going to be something like, uh, you know, oh no, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. It's like, uh, oh no, this thought's going to come, and I won't be able to be quiet. It's something that's based on the past that will project into the future. And we're afraid that it's ruining our practice. But really, what's ruining our practice is that we just don't surrender to the fear, or we don't surrender to the wanting. Uh, And we think that we have to get rid of them to go deeper. But in actual fact, they're part of the process of going deeper. Over and over and over. And those of you who know to navigate through this, it doesn't guarantee that you navigate through it the next time. Because unless you're fully enlightened, you're going to face it. You, get, you finally get quiet. You know, you know how what it takes to get quiet? 
You know, it's like, well, I missed it this today. Well, maybe tomorrow it'll get that quiet. Yet the conditions that have to come together are so delicate. And then, of course, you know, we get freaked out if something's going to blow it, you know, because we forget. We forget that we can just yield into the reaction. And that being in the reaction is being in the present moment. And there's nothing like it when you finally go, oh, wanting. This doesn't mean that it's pleasant. When you finally say, oh, wanting or not wanting, it all it means is that you're letting the wanting come and go by itself. Just like the breath. You honor its presence. That's humility. And there's nothing like it. It's great. We all um, have an Achilles heel in our life. And over years of practice, there'll be some things that will be very humbling because there's these kind of karmic grooves in the mind that they just trip us up and they trip us up and they trip us up. And it can be very frustrating. It could be a bodily sensation. It could be an emotion. It could be a thought. Often it's just this subtle, teeny little thought. And yet it keeps appearing and keeps appearing. And we can get tripped out about, oh, not this again, or this is still happening. But try to remember that underneath that is only aversion and attachment. It's our greatest teacher for learning how to do what I'm saying, which is to yield and go, oh yeah, admit, they're still craving. Well, unless you're third stage of enlightenment in this tradition, yeah, there is still craving. Oh boy. This is a poem by D.H. Lawrence called The Snake. And I thought about editing it a bit, but it's so profound. I think I might read the whole thing. Um, I try to remember that he lived a while ago. I think this was uh, first published in 1929. There has been some movement in the West about opening to snakes (laughs) compared to maybe 1929. Uh, But you can just imagine, put yourself in 1929 thinking about the appearance of a snake. A snake came to my water trough on a hot, hot day and I in pajamas for the heat to drink there. In In the deep, strange, scented shade of the great dark carob tree, I came down the steps and with my pitcher and must wait, must stand and wait, for there he was at the trough before me. He reached down from a fissure in the earth while in the gloom and trailed his yellow-brown blackness, soft-bellied down over the edge of the stone trough 
and rested his throat upon the stone bottom. And where the water had had dripped from the tap, in a small clearness, he sipped with his straight mouth, softly drank through his straight gums into his slack, long body, silently. Someone was before me at my water trough, and I, like a second comer, waiting. Think about yourself facing your own darkness and difficulties as you hear this. He lifted his head from his drinking as cattle do and looked at me vaguely as drinking cattle do and flickered his two-forked tongue from his lips and mused a moment and stooped and drank a little more, being earth-brown, earth-golden, from the burning bowels of the earth on the day of Sicilian July, with Etna smoking. The voice of my education said to me, he must be killed, for in Sicily the black, black snakes are innocent, the gold are venomous. And voices in me said, if you were a man, you would take a stick and break him now and finish him off. But must I confess how I like him? liked him, How glad I was he had come like a guest in quiet to drink at my water trough and depart peaceful, pacified, and thankless into the burning bowels of this earth. Was it cowardice that I dared not to kill him? Was it perversity that I longed to talk with him? Was it humility to feel so honored? I felt so honored. And yet those voices, if you were not afraid, you would kill him. But truly I was afraid, I was most afraid, but even so honored still more that he should seek my hospitality from out the dark door of the secret earth. He drank enough, lifted his head dreamily as one who has drunken, and flickered his tongue like a forked night on the air so black seeming to lick his lips and looked around like a god unseeing into the air and slowly turned his head and slowly, very slowly, as if thrice a dream, proceeded to draw his slow length curving round and climb again the broken bank of my wall face. And as he put his head into that dreadful hole and as he slowly drew up, snake-easing his shoulders and entered further, a sort of horror, a sort of protest against his, his withdrawing into that horrid black hole, deliberately going into the blackness and slowly drawing himself after, overcame me now that his back was turned. I looked around. I put down my pitcher. I picked up a clumsy log and threw it at the water trough with a clatter. I think it did not hit him, but suddenly that part of him that was left behind convulsed in an undignified haste, writhed like lightning, and was gone. And immediately I regretted it. I thought, how paltry, how vulgar, what a mean act, I I despised myself 
and the voices of my accursed human education. For he seemed to me again like a king, like a king in exile, uncrowned in the underworld, now due to be crowned again. And so I missed my chance with one of the lords of life, and I have something to expiate, a pettiness. There's so much in that um, to feel so honored by the snake's presence in truth. And I think it's so natural for us to be humble. And yet there's all those voices. And how do we relate to the dark or unpleasant or mysterious aspects of ourselves? And really desire, attachment, aversion, fear. They're so mysterious, ultimately. It's so different for each one of us, what we're afraid of, what, what we hold on to. You know, the, what's universal is that we do it. How we do it is so eccentric and unique. And what I found to be very um, hard to learn and practice was to see that the the fear or the attachment, the aversion, um, were really my defense system. It was how I learned to survive in the world. It's how I protected myself. And as I started to practice, I started to see that um, I was hating. I started to hate the very thing that had protected me. So when you have a contraction in the shoulder and it's very tight and painful, you'll want to get rid of it, just like he went to take the the blog and throw it at the snake. Your body is finally relaxing enough to show you something. Your body is relaxing enough to show you that it sacrificed itself for you until you can feel the fear or the aversion or the attachment. But instead... What do we do when a painful sensation comes up, especially if it's 10 years or 20 years or, heaven forbid, 30 or 40 years into your practice? It's still coming up, and yet we still usually react with this hatred like we've been taught, like the snake. What would be more appropriate if we understand is to honor and bow down to this part of ourself that tightened and learned to tighten until we have the mindfulness, the protection, the protection of mindfulness or the protection of metta. And then that part of us no longer needs to protect us. It can relax. So please be careful when you hear the teachings about, you know, the reactive mind or the clinging or non-clinging. It's like when there's clinging, we're usually afraid. (laughs) and there's a part of us that grabs on because we don't feel safe. We're not protected by mindfulness in that moment. And if you start shifting your practice with this attitude that, oh, wherever greed, hatred, and delusion arises, 
it's because I haven't replaced that yet with mindfulness or metta. There's a whole new way that we cherish ourselves. And we cherish the practice, and we even cherish the reactions, because that's what we've used as a protection. That's humility. The Buddha's teaching is very simple and clear. Like I said, it's like the basics of how we suffer. You know, they're they're remarkably universal no matter what gender we are, no matter what race we are, no matter where we were born, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The storyline will be different, but how we suffer will be so universal. And I think that what I would encourage you is to more and more have that interest in the reaction rather than resisting the reaction because it means something about ourselves. Humility (laughs) is being able to accept that we react when we're not seeing clearly, when when we don't have the mindfulness to protect us, to be able to just admit that. Ultimately, life is a great mystery. How our practice unfolds is a great mystery. When there's less self-deception, there's more mystery. There's more room for it. There's more space for it. When there's most or a lot of self-deception, there's no room for mystery. One of my deepest experiences of letting go, and therefore of mystery, has been in um, honoring my sister who died last year and my dad who died this year, uh, honoring their wishes of where they wanted their ashes to be scattered. And with my sister's ashes, I had shown her a video of this land on the big island of Hawaii uh, that uh, Stephen Smith and I have been working toward purchasing for (laughs) many years. Um, And she looked at the video, and she picked a place that she wanted me to bring her ashes. So the first time that I went there with her ashes, I went with a friend of mine, and it was a really windy day. Uh, and it was one of those days that I should have just surrendered and not done it. I mean, nothing was working right. And, you know, we were with other people that were in a hurry. And, you know, it's not so good to scatter ashes when you're in a hurry. You know, it just, <laughs> it just doesn't, it's the, the ritual just doesn't come off. Um, so I... <laughs> These people were in such a hurry, we didn't have time to go to the place where she wanted her ashes scattered. So what I decided to do, because I wanted to do it with this friend, uh, was to scatter a few and then wait till the next time I went and do it where she wanted to. So this is great. I mean, it was like perfect. I, we went to the cliff and we threw the ashes over and they went right back in our face. <laughs> 
<laughs> all over us, like in our eyes and in our hair. And it, you know, <laughs> I deserved it. <laughs> you know, it's just, I wasn't surrendering to any of it. You know, it's just like, it wasn't working out, you know, so I wasn't really being honest, I wasn't going with the flow, but it was okay, you know, it was... But then, (laughs) I went again, I had to do it by myself this time, much more slow, you know, it was, I took enough time, walked there and um, meditated there, and the the place she picked was unbelievably, for me it's the most powerful place on the land, and that she could pick it from a... My own video, which I'd never done before, it was amazing. Um, but still, this is quite interesting. I let most of them go, but I wouldn't let go of a few of them. And then I, all the voices came in, just like that poem. You know, like all my friends save their their you know family's ashes and they put them on the altar. And all these stories of all these people I knew who didn't let all the ashes go or wear them or you know they're here, they're there. Um, so, you know, I'd done this thing, and I was walking back, and it was really gnawing on me. Like, I was walking back along this cliff along the ocean, and some part of me just thought, wow, I'm still holding on to her. So I just took them (laughs) and put them over. And it was one of the most powerful moments in my life, because it was just that immediate feedback of just that complete, utter letting go. And this, just like that poem, that tripping over joy, the laughter, I mean, I was jumping for joy, just ecstatic. Uh, and I felt like all the devas, all the beings, whales, you know, birds, everything was just kind of laughing and clapping uh, that I finally let go. You know, that's how powerful it was. Each moment we're doing that. You know, you know those moments when you really just let it go. And whether there's aversion or attachment or, you know, sleepiness or whatever, there's peace. You know, you've just let go of the remote. You've let go of making another move, you know, on the chess game. You let the chess game just play itself out. And I keep having these experiences with these ashes because my father wanted his ashes flown over where um, I lived a lot of my early life with him. Uh, but of course my family didn't, you know, well, actually the Environmental Protection Agency uh, doesn't like you to dump all the ashes over out of a plane anymore, you know, whether it's environmental or that they think maybe it's anthrax or something. But we only could let a, a few ashes out of the plane but again, it was quite an interesting thing around the ashes with my family because we brought a lot of them to the ocean where um, we knew my father loved. Uh, and my nephew was with me, and he was really the only one who could just show up for it with me. And when we put him in, and it was like, he's like, oh, they're sparkling. And he's like, oh, they're sparkling. Oh, they're just melting into everything. It was like he could just see how life and death, you know, from dust to death, it's okay. It was like we shared that moment together. 
And then after this, this is just funny to see how hard it is for us to all let go. My sister, my other sister who didn't die, she's alive, still had some of my sister's ashes. And she, I didn't know it. And she had saved a few, you know, we, I thought, okay, it's done. And then she showed me, she had, a, <laughs> she had a few of my sisters and she had some of dad's. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's like, oh. <laughs> and so... Um, my nephew and I decided to go to this place that's very special to all of us, you know, my sister, you know, a, a place on the Cape, on the beach. And there's like a 100-foot cliff. And actually, my nephew had, we moved when I was, you know, when he was three. I think he was three or four. Uh, and he has just incredible dreams of this place, and he really misses it. We haven't been back there. He's, uh, what is he now? 33. So he hasn't been there for 30 years. I haven't been there for 30 years. So we ran down the cliff together. You know, I jumped in the water, but he didn't go under, you know. But And we dropped them in, and he just said, goodbye, Grandpa, goodbye, Norma. And it was, he said, this is, he looked at me, and he said, this is the end of the line, isn't it? <laughs> and it was just, again, this incredible freedom of letting go. It's so wonderful. And it's mysterious. You know, how mysterious is that? You can't plan it. You know, you can't, you can't plan when you let go like that. You can't make it happen again. That's what we call a good sitting. That's what we call when we're really quiet. That's what we get the most attached to. We get more attached to that than anything. More attached to it than chocolate, (laughs) than sex, than a good movie. I mean, we get attached to a good sitting. Uh, And the whole process is one of seeing that we cannot control it. It's not our chess game to make that move. It's a kind of grace. If we think of that kind of peace as something that we receive, just like we receive the breath, we receive the sound, we receive the clinging, and we receive the non-clinging. You know, then the practice just happens, it comes and goes by itself. And we can have this kind of, um, it's like this ancient trust that's in our genes. It's like it's a spiritual trust that we recognize, we know, when we really feel this deep reassurance that we know when it's okay, we know we're okay, we know everything's okay. You know, we feel that when we really that deeply let go of control of the remote and are that humble. Let's sit for a minute. 